In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the war that raged within him. And because his words are preserved, we can find the answers to two questions in terms of our spiritual condition. What's my problem and what can I do about it? I'll suggest that the problem is that my desires are reconcilable. And what we'll talk, we'll talk about first person. Paul will say my desires are irreconcilable. And what we've been talking about, if it's true for Paul, then it would be true for us as well. Uh, he talks about his condition as what he says. What I want to do, I do not do. He says what I hate, I do. He says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He says, I do not do the good I want to do, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. He says these words, and because he says them, he puts these words in our mouths. If this is true for him, it's true for us as well. This is our spiritual condition. When we make statements like this, and we've said we blame somebody, what I want to do, I do not do because I'm lazy. What I hate, I do because I'm bad. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out because I'm undisciplined. I do not do the good I want to do, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We blame somebody, and the interesting thing that Paul doesn't seem to blame anyone. He doesn't blame himself. He doesn't blame anyone else. What are the implications of these statements? If they're true, not just for Paul, but for us, then I think we could probably make these assertions. Uh, because my desires are irreconcilable, when you think about it, because my desires are irreconcilable, that means they don't line up. If my desires, my pleasures, don't line up, then I can't have what I want to have. Because I want to have this, and I want to have that, and this and that don't go together. This and that are irreconcilable. They're opposed. It means that I cannot have what I want to have. It means I can't do what I want to do, because I want to do this, and I want to do that. I can't think what I want to think. I can't feel what I want to feel. And when we can't have what we want to have, and when we can't do what we want to do and think what we want to think and feel what we want to feel, it's very natural for us to blame someone, to feel like someone's at fault. If I am not getting what I want, then there's something wrong, either with me or with those who care for me. Paul, though, when he makes these statements, he doesn't condemn even himself. And the reason he doesn't condemn himself, even though all these things are true, is because he understands that God doesn't condemn him. That's what he writes in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We need to grasp what he is saying. He's saying there's no condemnation, even though this is his condition. There's no condemnation, 
Even though what he wants to do, he doesn't do. There's no condemnation, even though what he hate, he does. And not only no condemnation for him, but no condemnation for us as well. No condemnation. This is hard to believe. We assume that we aren't condemned, but... We always had a disclaimer. We always add a disclaimer. I'm not condemned, but um, I need to confess. I'm not condemned, but I need to do better next time. Um, Jesus was clear about the, the fact of no condemnation. Look what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him... <laughs> is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We talked about this before. Somebody who does evil and hates the light and will not come into the light because his deeds will be exposed, what is that person's problem? Does he have a behavioral problem? Or does he have a belief problem? Is it the fact that he has done wrong things? Is that the problem? Is that the reason why he won't come into the light? Jesus didn't come in to the world to condemn the world. Somebody who's afraid to come into the light, it's not a belief, it's not a behavior problem, it's a belief problem. They don't either know or they don't believe what God sent his son into the world to do. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Somebody who's afraid to come into the light because God will expose his deeds, that person's issue is not their deeds. It's not the things that they've done wrong. It's that they haven't heard what God said. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. And if that's true... Do you need to be afraid to come into God's presence? Do you need to be afraid that God's going to shine the spotlight on the things that you've done? The fact is, no, you don't need to be afraid of that because that's not why God sent his son into the world. Jesus was very clear, but he says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and not be condemned. Um, he has crossed over from death to life. It seems pretty clear what the Bible says, but it's 
hard to believe. It's hard to believe we're not condemned. And I'm not saying because we're lazy. It's just very difficult for us to believe because we hear so many different things. And there's places in the Bible that are confusing. But in general, the Bible is really clear. There is a, um, a sheet from Base for Grace. There is a reading. Pull that out. If I'm, I'm going to read it and follow along. There's a sheet at, in it for Base for Grace. How does God forgive our sins? That's the question. It says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. We commonly hear that God the Father punished his son in order to forgive our sins. It is true that Jesus Christ died for our sins. It is not true that Jesus was punished for our sins. Our understanding of God's forgiveness comes from the Old Testament of the Bible. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonements for one's life. To make atonement means to wipe away or remove something. That's what to atone means. God provided the blood of animals to wipe away sin. Purification, not punishment, is the purpose behind these animal sacrifices. God didn't take the animal's life. He gave it. This helps us understand why God sent his son into the world. Jesus was called the Lamb of God. He willingly poured out his blood in order to wipe away our sins. His blood is not to be understood as life taken in anger. His blood is to be understood as life given in love. So then, if forgiveness doesn't require punishment, how does God forgive sins? God does not forgive our sins by punishing the Lamb of God. God forgives our sins by canceling the law of God. Imagine that you've broken the law in a foreign country. Because their law is extremely harsh, you are sentenced to die. How can you be pardoned? One way is for someone to die in your place. In this case, you would be released because the law was satisfied. Somebody died. There is another option. Your home country could declare war on the country you're imprisoned in and conquer it. By overthrowing their government, you'd be released because their law would be canceled. Which of these scenarios best represents Jesus' death for our sins. What happened on the cross? It says, He forgave our all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. God disarmed the powers and authorities and 
defeated them by the cross. He forgave our sins by taking the written code and nailing it, the code to the cross. The second of the two scenarios is a better representation of how God forgives sins. God forgives sins by canceling the law our sins are based upon. Transgressions are forgiven because where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. God remembers sins no more because sin is not taken into account when there is no law. God does not tell believers in Jesus Christ to trust him to forgive sins. God tells believers in Jesus Christ to trust that sin is not taken into account in the first place. God wants his children to believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. God does not condemn his children. He has already condemned the law. Okay, that's all well and good. But what about sins? I mean, are sins okay? Is it good to act any way that we want to? It's important that we remember what the problem is. Here's what we have seen. What's my problem? My desires are irreconcilable, but there's also another problem, and that is sin living Sin is living in me. See, what Paul is saying here, that sins are not the problem. Sins are not the problem. Sin is the problem with a capital S. It says, Paul says, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Apart from law, sin is dead. Sin as an influence is increased and made irresistible by law. Here's the deal. If sin is the problem, then we need to control sin. And what Paul says to us is that sin is made uncontrollable by law. If sin is the problem, and if sin is made uncontrollable by law, what's the solution? To stop doing sinful things? No, the solution is we've got to decrease sin's power. And sin's power is increased under law and decreased under what we'll see is the new covenant. This is why God removes condemnation says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life is the, the new covenant. And the law of the spirit, the law of sin and death is the old covenant. It says he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. The problem is sin. And because sin is the issue, it says sin isn't living in me because I do bad things, think bad things, and want bad things. 
I want bad things, do bad things, and think bad things because sin is living in me. See, sin living in us is the problem. And as Paul said, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. That's what we have. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. As we've said, the law of the spirit of life, I think, is the new covenant. And the law of sin and death is the old covenant. That's what it suggests. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Seems to suggest this then. The new covenant sets us free from the old covenant. The new covenant sets us free from the old covenant, and it's the only thing that can do so. It says, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That word release, here's the definition. Non-physical destruction by means of a greater power coming in to replace the power previously in effect. God released us from the law. What released means when something more powerful replaces something less powerful. The only thing that can get us out from under the old covenant is a more powerful covenant, the new covenant, and that's what Paul is saying. The new covenant is God's solution. Under the old covenant, sin's influence is strengthened and God's influence is weakened. Under the old covenant, Sin's influence is strengthened, and God's influence is weakened under the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, sin's influence is weakened, and God's influence is strengthened. That's what Paul is saying. Understanding the problem helps us to identify the solution, and we've talked about it. Develop covenant clarity. Understand what covenant we're under. The old covenant says God will bless you if you obey and curse you if you disobey. We're not under that covenant. We're under the covenant where God says there's no condemnation because he is merciful to our unrighteousnesses and remembers our sins no more. He doesn't remember our sins anymore. That's what it indicates. Paul says, though, this might seem straightforward, but Paul says that this will be the problem in the last days. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, not put up with, it means not tolerate, not sit still for. What Paul says, the time will come where people won't sit still to listen to things. He says, they will gather to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears wants to hear. Do you understand what the problem is? Paul says, here's what will happen. The word is pretty straightforward. But the time will come where people will have a really hard time sitting still, listening to anything. It, they will flit from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And the problem is, if you flit from this place to that place to that place, you can't really draw in and deeply internalize what the Bible is saying. It takes time. And what the Bible is indicating, that in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And that it's important for us to understand that, to 
develop covenant clarity. And we've talked about one thing that we can do in order to strengthen, practice new covenant confession. What the new covenant says, we do things wrong, but the things that we do wrong do not have the power to separate us from God. So this would be my suggestion. Practice this. When you do something wrong, you cut somebody off, you curse somebody out. Talk about to God the thing that you did. God, I did that thing. And admit it. Confession means to say the same, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. Go on to say, but you're still in me and you're still with me and good's still ahead of me, guaranteed. It seems like a little, but it's not a formula. It's every time you do it, it strengthens your belief muscle. Every time you do it, you practice moving under the new covenant and out from under the old. Um, this does seem dangerous from a certain perspective, doesn't it? If we remove the law's condemnation, why would we need to obey God in the first place? Right? If we remove the condemnation, why would we need to obey God? If there's no threat of punishment, what is there to keep us from sinning? You know, we assume that the threat of judgment fuels obedience. When it comes to influencing ourselves or others to obey, the fear of judgment is low-hanging fruit. But I think what condemnation does not promote obedience, at least long-term. That's what it says. You have not come to a mountain. It's describing in Hebrews 12 when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were gathering at Mount Sinai and listen to the, it was terrifying. It says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What they ran into at Mount Sinai was so terrifying, Moses was shaking. Wouldn't you imagine that an experience like that will galvanize people's obedience? You'd imagine that it would. And what ended up happening a month and a half later, they made the golden calf. The threat of obedience the threat of condemnation doesn't fuel long-lasting obedience. The old covenant can produce changes, but the changes are skin deep and short-lived. And that's the problem with it. When you try to frighten somebody into obeying by using the fear of condemnation and saying God's going to get you for that, it can promote change. But the changes are skin deep and short-lived. They don't last. The problem with that is God's judgment is not by what we do, but what we think and feel internally. God, changed, God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the obedience can't be skin deep. It's got to be heart deep. And it can't be short-lived. It's got to be something that lasts the threat of judgment will not, and actually it cannot, promote that kind of obedience. Condemnation cannot 
promote. Means look what it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Looked at this, but it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. When it talks about obedience, the obedience that God requires of us is love. What this is saying, you cannot frighten somebody into loving. It doesn't work. There is no fear in love. What that means, if God wants us to love, the fear of condemnation and judgment is not going to do it. It's not going to do what we need to have done. So you know what God does in order to motivate us to love one another? He removes condemnation. And what he asks us to do is to learn to believe it. To learn to believe it. Um, as believers, as believers, God sees our conflictedness. The fact that we don't always want to do what he wants us to do. God sees our conflictedness and doesn't condemn it. You know what? If God is not condemning me, maybe I need to stop condemning me. If God is not condemning you, maybe you need to stop condemning you. I think what God wants, there's things that we do wrong, but the things, we're not going to learn to do the things God wants us to do by promoting internal fear. You know what God says, what he wants you to do? He really wants you to believe that you're not condemned. And you know what that's going to do? This is surprising. I heard this illustration. I want you to imagine yourself in a body of water and there are sharks around. They're swimming everywhere. Naturally, what would you do if you saw a shark coming at you? You'd flinch. What happened if you found that there's an impenetrable barrier around you? And you start to feel it, and you start to feel safe. There's a barrier. I, I, don't, I am not threatened by these sharks. You know what would end up happening after a while? Initially, you'd flinch, but after a while, it would occur to you, I'm safe. They can't get to me. And you know what you might do? Start to look at them and look at them swimming around. And you start to be interested in them. Those sharks are like our thoughts and feelings. Those sharks are like our thoughts and feelings. We are terrified by some of the things we think and feel because we imagine God hates me for thinking that. He's going to condemn me for thinking that. You know what God wants to do? He wants you to understand that you're safe. And you know what might happen after a while? You'd stop condemning those thoughts, and you'd start to observe them. And you'd start to think about, why am I thinking that? Why am I doing that? And over time, you'd be more gentle with yourself. And you know what's going to happen if you're more gentle with yourself? You're going to be more gentle with others. If you're not always reacting to yourself, you won't react to others. That's why God removes condemnation. We have to stop condemning ourselves. 
We have to learn to be gentle with ourselves. We cannot be gentle with others if we're not gentle with ourselves. That's why God removes condemnation. That makes sense, doesn't it? When you understand the problem, the solution makes sense. What's the problem? What's my problem? My desires are irreconcilable. Sin is living within me as a power. I'm weary of the war within, and God wants me to live with the war within. We'll talk more about that next week. What can I do about it? I need to control sin, not sins. Big thing, I need to develop new covenant faith. I need to pour out my heart to God. Let's stand for closing prayer and to pray for the meal. It's pretty clear what the word says about condemnation, but it's very difficult for to believe because we don't hear this. Or if we hear it, we kind of hear it, but then we say, well, yeah, that's true, but, but it doesn't seem there's a lot of buts here. You tell us that you don't condemn us. And it makes us wonder because certainly sinful behaviors aren't okay. But what Paul tells us is sins aren't the problem, sin is. Sin as a power is increased by the threat of condemnation. That's why you remove the threat of condemnation with the promise of no condemnation. And as we continue to think about that over the weeks and over the years, little by little, it will start to sink into our heart. It doesn't happen quickly. Little by little, we keep on looking at it. No condemnation, no condemnation. We start to believe it deep inside. And it starts to change the way we think about ourselves and think about others. It transforms us. Thanks for that. And I pray for the meal that we get to share together and the time talking and fellowshipping that will happen. Thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.